Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 11 of the Here I Am podcast. Uh, I am your host, Anjay, also known as a dork who lifts on the TikToks and the Instagrams. And um, today, I'm going to be having a little bit of a rough topic to talk about. Um, I've been getting a lot of questions from people uh, wanting to know more about the death of my parents and my grieving process through that. I've mentioned in previous episodes a little bit about them. And uh, even like on TikTok, I've, uh, I've mentioned it before. And um, so naturally, it's going to be curious and more than happy to talk about it. Uh, the thing that I feel like I need to lay out first is that um, everybody's grieving process is different. And grief is something that kind of just sticks with you forever. Um, in my opinion, I think it just sticks around with you forever. There's no such thing as, you know, you get over it, you forget about it, you move on. You just kind of learn to live with it. And uh, you learn to develop um, tools to help you in those moments where it hurts a lot when you miss them a lot and knowing that it's okay when you lose a loved one no matter how much time has gone by that it is okay to miss them um so yeah i'll be honest i'm 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 nervous about talking about this uh i've talked about it in spurts before and i've had discussions about it and i don't know why Today, of all days, I'm nervous about talking about this, but I think it's just, I've been thinking about my parents a lot lately, and I don't want to go into, a, I'm a, I guess I'm afraid to go into a spiral of like really missing them and being sad and crying and and. I'm not afraid to cry. I usually enjoy a good cry. It's very cathartic, but it's also, um, I don't know, there's just a lot of hurt and I'm afraid I'm gonna be opening up some wounds, but if it happens, it happens. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. I think I think it'll be okay. Um, so I guess the, the first place to actually start would be, um, you know, how I came into my family. Uh, I, so I am adopted. And my parents weren't exactly, my parents were looking to adopt, but they weren't exactly looking to adopt a, a baby. They were looking to adopt a toddler. And um, because they heard that it was a lot easier to do that. And you know, they were kind of getting up there in age and my brother was about eight years old or so. So they're kind of looking for someone like a, like a little kid to bring into the family and uh, grow up with my brother. And um, you know, I kind of fell into their lap. And the reason why I fell into their lap was because uh, my birth mother did drugs during her pregnancy. And um, so uh, she did, from what I've been told, she did crack and she smoked pot. 
And, um, and so when I was born, I, they thought I was going to be a crack baby. And I was held for a couple of weeks in the hospital doing blood tests. And they were just kind of waiting for me to relapse. And I was supposed to go to a different family. Um, but that family rejected me when they learned of the problems that, uh, the problems that I had, or they thought I had, and they didn't want to deal with it. And then, so my dad gets a call while he's at work and they go, Hey, we know you're looking to adopt a toddler, but how would you feel about adopting a baby instead? And he goes, yeah, yeah, definitely. A hundred percent. And he calls my mom and my mom at the time was visiting with my grandfather uh, in the hospital of all places. And so my mom technically found out she's having a baby while in a hospital. And I think that's like a little bit of a funny story. Um, and so, you know, they were told of all the problems and issues that I was going to have and uh or i might have had uh, they got a second opinion turns out i was going to be okay but you know my dad when they were telling me the story he always told me um you know we were going to take you in no matter what we were it didn't matter if you were brain damaged or whatever if you had to be in a wheelchair for the rest of your life we were going to take you in no matter what and we were going to take care of you and we were going to love you <sighs> And I always get emotional when I say that story, but um, those are words I never forgot. And I share that story with you because it's a real important chapter into what happened with my parents. Um, I do remember when they first told me about my adoption, I was 11 years old. We were uh, sitting in the dining room table, having dinner which in of itself was weird. That wasn't like a tradition we ever did. We, we always, the only time we would ever eat at the dining room table would be if it was like a holiday or something like that. Uh, but we were all eating dinner and then they told me I was adopted and I laughed <laughs> really, really hard because I thought it was a joke. I, I thought they were kidding. And I remember I looked over to my brother and my brother was laughing really, really hard too. So him being the older brother, him being eight years older than me, I'm laughing. I'm, you know, I'm looking at him and he's laughing and I'm like, oh, okay. So like, this is seriously a joke. And, um, and then, so I'm laughing, he's laughing. I turn and look at my parents and they have like this, like dead pan serious look on their face of like, we're not, we're not joking. Like we're telling you you're adopted. And I immediately started crying. And I think, you know, as I'm going through therapy and everything, uh, and I didn't know how to articulate it as a kid, but I can articulate it now as an adult. That was really the first time I felt like I wasn't wanted. Even though like, yeah, my parents chose me and they brought me into their house, but I felt I got rejected. And then when I was 18, they told me the drug part of the story. And that was even more, wow, like I got rejected twice. And again, I didn't know how to articulate it. I didn't know how to express my feelings. Um, and growing up, 
you know, I always felt like I was a part of the family and everything like that. But, you know, my dad was kind of a hard ass and he was always like the, the enforcer and I didn't have the best relationship with him. I mean, I loved him to death. Don't get me wrong. He was always there for me. He always provided anytime I ever asked for anything. Um, but he was always just kind of, he and I always butted heads all the time. And I had a very special, I had a more special relationship with my mom. And I always felt like I could hang out with my mom and sit and talk with her. And if I hung out with my dad, it, it, there was always kind of like a little bit of a tension there, even though my dad and I, we like, you know, we did cool stuff together and we did things. There was always just kind of like walking on eggshells um, around him. And then, you know, the older I got, um, the more my father started turning to the bottle a lot more. And, you know, after my brother moved out of our house um, and my grandparents were gone, he, uh, he went further and further down that bottle. And when he needed to, whenever he got angry, he kind of turned to me to uh, get angry at me. And I was always battling with him, you know, this is kind of all over the place. I'm realizing this. I'm sorry, but, um, you know, this isn't structured. This podcast has never been structured and I'm just kind of going off the top of my head here. Um, but I, I, I remember growing up, I was always battling him with his health and I wanted him to be healthier. I wanted him to not smoke as much. I didn't wanted him to not drink as much. I wanted him to not eat as much. And the eating part was like literally the pot calling a kettle black because I was a big giant fat kid growing up. And, you know, I always got picked on and bullied and stuff because of it. Um, and that, again, that comes more from the stems of like not feeling wanted and not uh, feeling I was ever good enough. Um, but, you know, the further that my dad went down the bottle, the more that he would take out his frustrations on me. He didn't he didn't ever physically do it, but he knew how to do it verbally. And he, he was the only person who could ever like, just get me in like 0.5 seconds flat. Like he just, he just knew the button to push. Um, so towards the end, uh, no, I don't want to go that far yet. Um, so my dad also had to, you know, as he's going further and further down the bottle, he started going deeper when he retired. Um, he had to retire for health reasons. Again, another reason why I wanted him to get in better shape and everything like that, but he never wanted to do it. Um, he was a, he worked as a code enforcement officer and he worked in a very not great neighborhood and area and he got exposed to a lot of things and it really wrecked his immune system. So this is a man who can get a, a common cold and it can turn into pneumonia super quickly. And we've had multiple instances of him going to the hospital and going to uh, the emergency room and having hospital stays and all that type of stuff. So after he retired and he was forced to retire to, for health purposes, again, he, he didn't have anything to distract him. You know what I mean? He didn't have, he didn't have work to go to, to get through his day. So he would spend his whole day drinking and he'd start from like five in the morning and pass out through a chunk of the day and then as soon as he woke back up start drinking some more and 
pass out and just start the routine all over again, right? And um, so we had at one point, um, you know, I was 400 pounds and I made a decision that I needed to lose weight and I wanted to lose weight. I always knew I needed to, but I hit a point where I wanted to and I did. And I started working at a gym whilst I was pursuing an acting career. And um, I became a personal trainer and my dad was proud of me for doing that. And I, um, he became my first client and I was really, really proud of him because he was, it seemed like he finally wanted to make the change and he started um, drinking less, he started smoking less, he started eating better. Uh, I was still living at home, so I'd, I'd, I'd cook meals for him from time to time, and he actually liked them, even though they were really healthy. And, uh, you know, he was proud of me, and he decided to, I was looking into getting a tummy tuck surgery because I had uh, excess skin on my stomach, like a lot of it, and I think I needed to do it to you know, help pursue my career in acting. And um, he decided to pay for it himself. He's like, I'm really proud of you. And then uh, I remember the day after I had my surgery, I was in my room. I stood up too quickly. I blacked out. I fell, I had a little coffee table in my room. I fell and I hit that. And I really aggravated the incision. I was bleeding a bit. And he, uh, and he was there and he took care of me and I couldn't sleep in my room. I, I had really trouble, a lot of trouble laying on my back because I toss and turn when I sleep. So I started sleeping in the living room on a recliner and uh, the doctor was like, he's lost a bit of blood. Just make sure you give him some like steak and eggs and he'll be fine. And uh, so my dad would do that. He knew how to cook it. And my dad started taking care of me a bit. Um, but at the same time, he was smoking more, he started drinking more and he started eating bad again and he was doing it really heavily and really rapidly. And so six days after I had my surgery, we were awoken in the middle of the night. He was having trouble breathing and I was pissed. Because I was like, well, no fucking shit. You're having trouble breathing. You're smoking heavily again. And like I said, we've, we're used to calling 911. We're used to having the ambulance come over. We're used to having him go to the hospital. And it was just kind of like one of those, like, here we go all over again type of things. Right. Um, so ambulance comes, take him to the hospital. They stabilized him and everything like that. They, um, they sent him home and, uh, you know, woke up really early in the morning. Mom comes out to the living room. I go, you got to talk to dad. Like, we can't do this shit anymore. Like, you got to say something. And again, we've been battling his health for so fucking long. 
And she yells at me and she's like, what the fuck do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? My dad comes out of the room and he's like, what are you guys yelling about? And I said, you, I'm really disappointed in you. And I knew those words hit him in a really different way because he didn't fight back. It was like he knew he fucked up. And he just kind of went, oh. And he slowly turned back. He went to his room. And he got dressed. And he goes, he was going to the pharmacy to get some meds that he was, um, get some meds that he was prescribed and some refills and some other ones. And he, uh, he never made it out of the parking lot. He got out of his car. He collapsed. He had a heart, he's having a heart attack. He stopped breathing. And it took a while for somebody to realize that he was there. And it took a long time for an ambulance to show up. Ironically, even though it's outside of a hospital, but it wasn't like a, like a main hospital. Um, they started CPR and the little incubator that they put down your throat to help you breathe. Uh, the, the EMTs and the doctors eventually said that was that it went in way too easy. Um, and so I remember I'm home not knowing any of this is going on. And, uh, I ha I'm getting ready to go to my doc, my surgeon's like doctor's appointment with my surgeon to check on my wound and everything like that, check on the incision and everything like that. And, uh, there was a, a firefighter comes knocking on our door. My mom answered it and he goes, ma'am, I think you need to come with me to the hospital. Your husband, your husband's at the hospital right now. She goes, okay. And I call up one of my friends and I said, Hey, can you give me a ride on my doctor's appointment? And he goes, um, he goes, yeah, 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 we'll do that. And I remember I went and I'm sitting in the, the, the room waiting for the doctor to walk in. And then my mom calls me and she goes, you need to get here right now. Your dad's about to die. And I was like, what the fuck? And it's like, as soon as the doctor walked in, my mom said, your, your dad's about to die. And I just told the doctor, doctor, doc, hurry up. I got to get out of here. My dad's in the hospital and they're saying that he's going to die. And he's like, what? No, no, they don't ever say that over the phone. Like, no, no, no. And he just looked at my incision. He said, okay, yeah, you're good. Go. I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I didn't really know what to do. And then so my friend took me back, took me over to the hospital. I walk in, my brother's already there. And he just looked at me and he's like, he told me about like how it was, it's not looking good. They don't know how long my dad's brain went without oxygen. There's a really good possibility that he's going to have severe brain damage. And um. We knew that 
we knew that he wouldn't want to live that way. So we, uh, we made the call to say, let him go and stop giving him CPR. And, um, you know, he kind of had a heart rate. He got, he, his heartbeat was beating, but it wasn't beating great. And we were all just kind of sitting there around. Um, just waiting for him to go. And the hardest part about that was like, the last words I ever said to him were, I'm disappointed in you. And, and that stuck with me for such a long time. And it still hurts, but I'm, I've learned to forgive myself for that because I didn't know. And I know that it came from a place of love. And I know that I know that he knew that I loved him. Um, so then the day after he died, my brother comes over, he brings my niece and we're in the backyard. It's just kind of hanging out. And my niece was, um, my niece was by the pool and she was trying to touch the water and, uh, she's like one at the time and she fell in and I stood up really quickly. My brother stood up really quickly. We ran over, he ran over, grabbed her, pulled her out of the pool. But when I stood up that quickly, one of the things you're not supposed to do when you have, you know, an incision straight across your stomach is stand up quickly and do quick movements. And, um, so I ended up ripping a couple of my sutures in the new belly button that I had and the, um, and along the incision line and I started to bleed. And so we got me uh, uh, back to the surgeon's office right away. And he pushed down on my stomach a little bit and he saw like a, a clump of blood come out and it was, uh, he's like, this is old blood. Like this isn't, and he's like, your body, it's, it's all coagulated. Your body's not processing it. So he's like, what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to need to put in a stint and, um, I should have grabbed tissues. Um, he's like, I'm going to need to put in a stint and you're going to be bleeding for a while. And the only reason why I'm allowing you to do this is because you have a lot of muscle on your body and you can handle it and you're going to be okay. He's like, I'm going to make sure you're okay. And I trusted him. And I ended up bleeding every day for two months straight. And, um, you know, I had nights where I was, I woke up in a pool of my own blood. Um, 
I remember telling you, like my I, I wore like a white shirt like I'm wearing right now. And it was uh just soaked. And I remember breaking down crying and just going like I'm fucking tired of bleeding, fucking tired of this shit. And I couldn't even process like what was happening with my what the, I, I never even started even processing that my dad was gone. It felt like a fucking nightmare. It I kept waiting for my dad to walk through that front door. Like this was all a joke, you know, like it was just this, um, like it was just this shitty ass dream, you know, it's just trying to wake up from it. And then I remember I healed and we, uh, we sold my dad's car and then, um, we, my mom wanted my brother and I to split the money from the car as like a, you get half, you get half type of thing. And I remember I took my money and I went skydiving um, because it was something that my dad always wanted to take me to. Uh, I was always too heavy, but he was like, I wanted to celebrate you losing your weight by taking you skydiving. Lord knows he wouldn't have gone. He wouldn't have jumped, but he would have taken me out there. And then so, um, so I remember I went out, I went with complete strangers. I had no, I, I, it was like a, my friend's brother and roommate that I went out with and I dressed up kind of for the occasion. Uh, cause my dad, a little extra backstory. My dad was a, a pilot in the United States air force and under his jumpsuit, he would always wear a Superman shirt cause he was flying. So when I went skydiving, I wore a Superman shirt to because I was doing this all for him. And I remember when we jumped out of the plane, I get emotional again. I remember jumping out of the plane and I was scared shitless. But the thing I was actually, I wasn't scared of falling or anything like that. I was more scared of like, I'm going to, the guy who I was strapped to was a lot smaller than me. And I afraid, I was afraid that I was going to like trip out of the plane and we're both going to go on like a crazy free and he's not going to be and like the weight's going to be too off. He's not going to be able to like correct us or anything like that or pull the shoot and stuff like that. And I remember we were falling and we were free falling for a while. And I remember thinking, wow, we're, we're really falling for a long ass time right now. And I'm like, if something's going wrong, I have no idea. But if this is how I go, well, dad, I guess I'm going to see you soon. But he eventually he pulled it shoot popped open and i remember i was just like looking over the valley and looking over across the ocean and going that was for you dad um so yeah and then after that is when i was able to go back to work and i i realized when i was at work that's when it all hit me that he was really gone and i started processing i fuck my dad's dead and I went through a long patch of my life of um, trying to figure out what I could do to honor him, what I could do to um, make him proud, like have him watch down and I'm making him proud. And so I realized that the acting career, I can't do it anymore because I wanted to find something 
where I could get into a position where my mom would know that I was going to be okay and that I was going to be set and she wouldn't have to worry about me anymore. So I decided to get a job working at Disneyland and the goal was I was going to work my way up in that company. And the reason why I got the job at Disneyland is uh, my family loved Disneyland. My, uh, my dad's met Walt several times. He's gone to his house. He's, you know, my grandfather painted the, the Disney studios when they were first built. He, um, he painted Walt's house. Uh, we have like pictures with my grandma and Walt somewhere around here. But um, so I was like, yeah, that would be it. That would be a thing. Like, you know, I love Disneyland. Um, dad would be proud of that. That'd be really cool. And I was doing that and I was working my ass off trying to work my way up in the company. And then my mom got sick. And we were noticing um, she was having trouble remembering words and her death perception was getting thrown off a lot. And my brother and I were just thinking, oh, it, this has to be old age. Like she's just getting up there in age. Like this is normal. This is fine. Um, and she wanted to go on a trip to Michigan with uh, – to visit her brother and my aunt, her, my uncle and my aunt, but it's her brother and her sister-in-law. And, um, and they were like, no, this isn't normal. She, there's something seriously wrong here. And then my mom had a, a bout of vertigo and they had to take her to the hospital and they ran some tests and they were like, I think she has Parkinson's. And my uncle got really mad at me and he called me to essentially cuss me out. And he said to me, um, like, you're not fucking dropping her off here. I had to watch my mother die. It's about time that you do the same. He's fucking saying that about his sister. And I was like, what the fuck, Doug? Sorry, I shouldn't have said his name, but, um, I was like, she wanted to go see you. We didn't, we didn't, um, we didn't, we weren't trying to plot something and have you take care of her. We weren't trying to do it. She wanted to go visit you. She wanted to see you. And, uh, you know, the rest of the family got really mad at him and he called to apologize and I, I did forgive him for it. Um, but, she came back and that was when I started to take care of her more and more. I stopped going out with friends after work. It was just me. I go to work. I come home. I helped take care of things around the house as best I could. And uh, we had a point where my mom goes, I don't feel safe being home alone anymore at night. And I said, okay. And I was faced with the dilemma. You know, I was working my way up in, at, with Disney. I was in leadership positions. I was doing really, really well. I, I was moving up faster than most people do when they work there. 
And uh, I made a decision that I had to quit and take care of my mom. With the idea originally being, I'm going to quit. I'm going to find a job closer to home and uh, where I can be home at night for her. And then, you know, as I started spending, you know, job hunting and just kind of um, staying at home more, I was noticing she was a lot worse off than we all thought. And that she needed me around 24-7. And we could have put her in a home. But I knew she wouldn't have wanted that. And I remember what my dad said to me when they adopted me. That those words of, we were going to take you in no matter what. If you had to be in a wheelchair your whole life, we were going to take you in and we were going to take care of you. So I made the decision to take care of my mom full time and be around 24-7. And I, I literally put everything I had into taking care of her. I tried taking her out to get her out and about as much as I could. Um, but I mean, I was, you know, I was waking up at four in the morning every day to get to the gym while she was still asleep so I can get my workout in, come home, wake her up, make her some breakfast and start her day. And, um, And we had a lot of battles, you know, she kept trying to sleep during the day instead of at night. I had to work on keeping her awake throughout the day uh, to make sure she did fall asleep at night and stay asleep at night. So when I say I was waking up at four o'clock in the morning to go to the gym, we are not including me waking up. At, let's say I went to bed at 10, nine or 10. I'd be up, let's say I went to bed at nine. I'd wake up at 10. I'd wake up at 11. I'd wake up at 12. I'd wake up at one. I'd wake up at two. I'd wake up at three. Just to make sure that she was asleep. Just to make sure she didn't need me. And a lot of times she did. A lot of times she needed me to help her to the bathroom, help her go to the bathroom, um, all those things. And like, I had to do, you know, when I say I did everything for that woman, I did, I, 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 I fed her, I bathed her, I changed her diapers. I <laughs> made sure her meds were all in a row, taking her to doctor's appointments. Um, at one point when she couldn't no longer sit up so I couldn't get go take her to get her hair cut anymore. I cut her hair. Uh, I fucking did everything. It was like, it was like she became my kid 
and at this time, this is when I got into really hardcore strength training where my goal was, I want to be able to lift as much as humanly possible. So if I had to move furniture around the house, which I did, if I had to pick her up and carry her and move her, which I did, I never wanted her to think that she was a burden to me. And I remember a lot of those really hard nights where she's crying, she's struggling, she's frustrated. She's wishing that she wasn't with this condition. Then I need a, 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 and the condition, I said Parkinson's earlier, that's what she was originally diagnosed with, but we got a second opinion. Uh, yeah, we took her to a neurologist and he looked at her MRI and he was like, this looks like, this looks like something else. It, 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 I can see where, the, where they would look at, think Parkinson's, but I think it's something else. And then he talked to another doctor and they agreed. And the disease that she had was called progressive supranuclear palsy, which is, um, which is a very, uh, a rare brain disorder. And on top of that, she had dementia. And, uh, and she also suffered from uh, restless leg syndrome. So it was just really hard being her caregiver. I poured everything I had into her. And I think the most frustrating thing and that people, I don't think people understand is, you know, when you're a caregiver for a loved one, especially when they have a disease that they are going to die from, it's hard because it's like, no matter what you do and how hard you work, it is never good enough. Because that disease is going to win. And it was me watching my mom slowly die right in front of my eyes. And she, she literally became my daughter. And, you know, when people talk about, you know, loving somebody unconditionally, the only people that actually love unconditionally are those are parents and dogs. Parents will love their kids unconditionally. They will do absolutely anything for them. I think in a normal relationship, there's always going to be conditions in terms of like, there's the condition that you have to treat the person well. There's the condition that you don't cheat. There's the condition that you don't abuse. Like those are all conditions. But I loved my mom unfucking conditionally. I would have done anything for her and I did, I did everything, but <sighs> so, uh, well, during this whole time, I'm, you know, I'm not realizing that my own mental health, like my, I'm noticing my mental health is draining. I'm noticing that my mental health is going down the shitter. Um, and my brother, he, uh, you know, he, he wasn't uh, exactly like on hand helping or anything like that because he had his own job. He had, he had his wife, he had his kids, he had his own family to take care of. But they had a point where they were like, dude, we're getting you a caregiver to try to give you a break. And, uh, oh, excuse me. Um, I never really had, even when I had a caregiver here, it was never a break. I would try to leave my house, but I was always on edge. I was always anxious. 
I was always just waiting for that phone call that something has happened. You need to get back. So even though I was not there, I was there mentally. I was always just kind of hovering around. And um, uh, one night, we had a caregiver here. And uh, I was noticing my mom's breathing was sounding a little weird, but I was like, okay, uh, I'm going to take you to the doctors tomorrow and see if we can get this figured out. I sent the caregiver home and uh, I was getting her ready for bed. And I gave my mom her pills and then all of a sudden she stopped breathing. And uh I thought uh, I thought she was choking on her pills. And so my first instinct was, well, maybe they didn't go down that far. I could probably figure, like get it out with my finger or something. I felt nothing. I picked her up and I was trying to give her the Heimlich, nothing. And I was like, she's not breathing. So I called 911 and they immediately tell me, start giving her CPR now. So I start giving her CPR and uh, I'm really strong and her, uh, her sternum breaks as I'm giving CPR, which is, I know is normal. It happens, but I still have those moments where uh, I have a, I feel the, the crunch of her sternum across my palm. And I'm freaking out. And then the firefighters come. They open the door. They relieve me. My dogs are freaking going crazy. And, uh, you know, EMT show up. They start working on her. They got like a bit of a pulse back. They're taking her to the hospital. And all the while, while I understand that firefighters are supposed to have, um, a really calm demeanor when they come to respond to these situations. Uh, and they've come to my house many a times and their, their goal is to not to increase more panic. I got really frustrated because they were so aloof and they were even like, are you sure you want to resuscitate her? Does she have a DNR? Like, should we actually be doing this? And I'm just like, not, there i'm just like shut the fuck up and fucking like save my mom and then uh so they took her to the hospital i called my brother i was like hey you need to meet me down there uh mom might be dying and he meets me down there and then i remember the the doctor walks out same hospital by the way that my dad died at and uh doctor walks out and goes, she's gone. And um, I start crying. I start breaking down. And I told my brother, this is my fault. I should have done more. I should have. I should have done a better job. And he immediately like shut, shut that down really hard. 
he's like, dude, you did everything for her. You did, you did the absolute best. You took such good care of her. And I know I did, but there, I just felt like I should have done more. And there's a lot of guilt with that. And it's taken me a really long time uh, to come to terms with that. Um, so after she died, she died around, I don't know, around like 10 o'clock at night. I got home probably around like 11. And the very next day, I was at the gym at 5 a.m. And the only reason was because I didn't know what else to do. The house was so quiet. You know, they, you know how that, that, that saying of uh, the silence is deafening. That's uh, it's the truest statement I've ever heard. Like I understood it. Even now to this day, and it's been five years. I, 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 I struggle to sit in silence. I always have to have something playing. I have to have um, some kind of noise going in the house. Um, so yeah, I, I, I still kept showing up at the gym and then I had to plan my mom's funeral by myself. Um, and set all that up and it was just hard and I was in such a place of I don't know what the fuck to do because that was my everything I, she was my purpose she was my reason for being she my job was to take care of her and um So she's gone. We have the funeral and everything like that. And um, I, I, I keep noticing that I was trying to do things for myself. I was trying to get out of the house. And uh, just like with uh, the caregiver, I was always anxious and I kept noticing that if I was out of my house for like more than an hour, I would get these severe, severe panic attacks. And I was struggling to sleep. I kept having nightmares. Um, I, I, I kept getting short with people. I kept, I kept to myself and again, like, you know, when my dad died, all I wanted was the world to stop. And so I could process this. And when my mom died, I just wanted the world to stop. And. And I kept looking around and like, say I would see cars drive by and I'm like, none of these people have any fucking idea what just happened. No one here knows that my world just imploded and I had, I had nothing, absolutely nothing. 
And it wasn't until years later that I realized I have PTSD from that, from taking care of my mom. But if you were to ever ask me, would I do it again? In a heartbeat, 1000%. I wouldn't trade anything away for that. Um, and it's really one of those things where this is why I, I keep preaching fucking be kind to each other be kind to other people we don't know what their stories are you don't know what people have gone through and then over time um, I realized I hit a point where I was like I I'm, I'm tired of being trapped in this house and this is like almost a full year after she died. And so I decided I'm going to take, uh, I'm not working. My mom luckily had a life insurance policy and I was living off of that. And I decided I needed to take, I needed to get, I needed to get out. I needed to escape. So I took a fuck it trip to London going like, you need to see if you can actually be out in the real world and not have panic attacks. And I was like, I've always wanted to go to London. My dad would tell me stories of what of his travels over there made me always want to go, always want to check it out. And um, so in a way that would be honoring him. And my mom never got to leave the country. She never got to go on an international trip. So I had like an old idea of hers and I took that with me to bring her with me. Um, and I was like, well, dude, if you, uh, this is your test. You have to see if you can, um, you got to see if you can fucking be out in the real world. Cause if you have a panic attack over there, you're going to have to learn to fucking deal with it because you can't turn around and go home. And, uh, I did. And it was probably the best trip I've ever taken in my life. I had a lot of freedom. I created a lot of great memories. And I came back and I felt like I was ready to go into the real world again. But that in turn caused a lot more anxieties because it's like, well, what the fuck do I do? And I tried doing several different things. Um, I even got into a relationship that I probably should never have gotten into because I wasn't healed. And... I didn't know how to process my emotions. I didn't know how to speak about my emotions. I didn't know how to, uh, I didn't know how to communicate. There's a lot of things that I didn't know how to do. And while that was a great relationship that I was in, we did a lot of good things. We never fought, which is a problem because again, um, didn't know how to communicate. So when either of us got really upset, we just kind of shut down from shit. And, you know, I was, trying to figure out what to do, what kind of work I wanted to get into. And a lot of the avenues I was trying to go down didn't pan out. And then COVID hit and I really got stuck. Um, and then I tried dating again and I just realized that I still had a long way to go. I still wasn't sure about how to communicate my feelings. And I really did need therapy. And I know I've talked about this company a lot on my podcast. 
but I'm so very grateful that I found Change Your Algorithm. And if any of you are listening to this or watching this, this is your first interaction with me. Uh, Change Your Algorithm is a free mental wellness website that offers a free access to a therapist. And it's in a group setting. It's all done over Zoom. Uh, you can be as anonymous as you want. You don't have to have your camera on. You don't have to talk. You don't have to share. You can just sit and listen. Um, but it's therapists giving you tools to help you with your problems. And I remember the first class I took was how to heal from traumas. And I was like, fuck, I need that class. Like, And then I met the therapist. Her name is Dr. Wendy. Check out episode six if uh, you want to. Uh, if you want to hear how amazing she is and um, she's taught me a lot in all the classes from change your algorithm have taught me a lot and it's taught me a lot of self-compassion it's taught me how to be able to express and talk about my emotions um, and it's taught me how to be valid and it's helped me a lot in my healing and with, with the grief of my parents it's helped me unlock a lot of aha moments especially with my father and our, our really rough relationship that we had. Um, it's taught me a lot of uh, self-compassion, you know, knowing that I did the best that I could with all the information that I had and that none of it was my fault. And how to really start talking kinder to myself. And it's, it's, and that all my feelings are valid and that I'm not alone. And, you know, now I've, I've become more in a place where I can talk more about my emotions, talk more about my feelings, talk more about what I need. And I've done a lot of healing from the, the death of my parents because of therapy. If you're able to get into therapy, get into therapy, like, and I know it's hard sometimes, money can get tight. And uh, it's hard to find the right therapist. And sometimes it's hard to find the right fit. I get it. I totally do. Because I, I went tried going through therapy a few times and it just wasn't good. Um, but yeah. And one of the things that I've also learned is the... Uh, is that when it comes to grief, there's two analogies, one that I used to go by and one that I'm going to go by now that I heard from another guest I had on this podcast named Abby Rosemarin, who's, um, who is episode four on this podcast. When it comes to grief, the thing that I used to say is when it ha uh, your, your feelings are this box and inside the box is this ball and this ball is the grief. And when the thing first happens, that ball is huge and it's touching all four sides of the box and it hurts and it's so much pain. But as time goes on, that ball starts to get smaller. And, but as it gets smaller, it starts to move around. And every once in a while, that ball will hit a wall. And that pain from that grief comes all the way back. And it hurts. It hurts a lot. Um, but it's something that's always there. And when it does come and when that ball does hit that, it's okay for it to happen. I know a lot of people 
especially me, I would, I would get really frustrated. I'd be like, why am I still getting bothered by this? Why is this still hurting? Why is this thing coming up? Instead of um, being, I guess, kinder to myself about it. And um, and knowing that it was okay, like it is okay. Those things happen. The analogy that I start to go by now that Abby brought up for me that I really loved, that I really liked was the ball stays the same size, but your box gets bigger. Life changes, life gets bigger, more experiences, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and it, and it, that ball still does move around and that ball still does hit the walls and it still hurts, but it, that it's okay. It just doesn't happen as often. Grief is something that it's not something that you ever get over. It's just something that you learn to live with. You know, my dad's been gone for 10 years and mom's been gone for five. I legitimately haven't gone a single day, not one single day, where I haven't said involuntarily out loud, I miss my mom, I miss my dad. And it's not in like a sad way. It's just like, I miss them. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it's more like, man, I fucking miss my mom and dad. Me talking about them right here and all that shit that went down, all these wounds that I just ripped open for this. It fucking hurts. It really fucking hurts. But like, I'm okay. Like the tears that were shed during this podcast is not like, oh God, the grief is starting all over again. It was just a sad moment in time. And it's okay to be sad about those moments. It's okay to be sad when the memory of them comes up. That's why I keep telling you. So I keep ending all these podcasts with please be kind to yourselves. Because this shit happens, trauma happens, and it, it, it sticks with us. It lives in our bodies. And we need to become aware of the thoughts that are coming to us in those moments. And remember that we did the best that we could. And... Um, there's no shame in that. And so at the end of every podcast, I started going, uh, what's your victory for today? And mine for today was doing this, sharing this with you all, because I was really fucking nervous about doing it. I've been really putting off recording this episode for a while. And um, I'm really proud of myself for doing it. So I want to say thank you all for listening. Thank you all for watching. I hope this helped in any way, shape, or form. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, please like, comment, subscribe, share. If you're listening to this on your podcast platform of choice, uh, please rate, leave a review, and share this with, with anybody who you think might need the help or might relate, I should say, it's probably a better choice of words. But for right now, I have to say, I appreciate you all for making it this far. Um, thank you for coming with me on this journey. And um, for now, just be kind to yourselves. Not for now, always, always be kind to yourselves. Keep being kind to yourselves and be good.